Section 19 of Old and New Masters by Robert Lind. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Chapter 13 The Madness of Strindberg. The mirror that Strindberg held up to nature was a cracked one. It was cracked in a double sense. It was crazy. It gave back broken images of a world which it made look like the chaos of a lunatic dream. Miss Lynde F. Hagby, in her popular biography of Strindberg, is too intent upon saying what can be said in his defense to make a serious attempt to analyze the secret of genius which is implicit in those 115 plays, novels, collections of stories, essays, and poems, which will be gathered into the complete edition of his work shortly to be published in Sweden. The biography will supply the need of that part of the public which has no time to read Strindberg, but has plenty of time to read about him. It will give them a capably potted Strindberg, and will tell them quietly and briefly much that he himself has told violently and at length in the son of a servant the confession of a fool and indeed in nearly everything he wrote on the other hand miss lynde's book has little value as an interpretation she does not do much to clear up the reasons which have made the writings of this mad swede matter of interest in every civilized country in the world she does indeed quote the remark of gorky who at the time of Strindberg's death, compared him to the ancient Danubian hero Danko, who, in order to help humanity out of the darkness of problems, tore his heart out of his breast, lit it, and holding it high, led the way. Strindberg, Miss Lind declares, patiently burnt his heart for the illumination of the people, and on the day when his body was laid low in the soil, the flame of his self-emulation was seen, pure and inextinguishable. This will not do. Patiently is impossible. So is pure and inextinguishable. Strindberg was at once a man of genius, and therefore noble, and a creature of doom, and therefore to be pitied. But to sum him up as a spontaneous martyr, in the greatest of great causes is to do injustice to language and to the lives of the saints and heroes he was a martyr of course in the sense in which we call a man a martyr to toothache he suffered but most of his sufferings were due not to tenderness of soul but to tenderness of nerves other artists lay hold upon life through an exceptional sensibility strindberg laid hold on life through an exceptional excitability, even an exceptional irritability. In his plays, novels, and essays alike, he is a specialist in the jars of existence. He magnified even the smallest worries until they assumed mountainous proportions. He was the kind of man who, if something went wrong with the kitchen boiler, felt that the devil and all his angels had been loosed upon him, as upon the righteousness of Job, with at least the connivance of heaven. He seems to have regarded the unsatisfactoriness of a servant as a scarcely less tremendous evil 
than the infidelity of a wife, if you wish to see into what follies of exaggeration Strindberg's want of the sense of proportion led him, you cannot do better than turn to those pages in Zones of the Spirit, as the English translation of his Blue Book is called, in which he tells us about his domestic troubles at the time of the rehearsal of the dream play. My servant left me. My domestic arrangements were upset. Within forty days I had six changes of servants, one worse than the other. At last I had to serve myself, lay the table, and light the stove. I ate black, broken victuals out of a basket. In short, I had to taste the whole bitterness of life without knowing why. Much as one may sympathize with the victim of the servant difficulty, one cannot but regard the last sentence as, in the vulgar phrase, rather a tall order but it becomes taller still before Strindberg has done with it. Then came the dress rehearsal of the dream play. This drama I wrote seven years ago, after a period of forty days' suffering, which were among the worst I had ever undergone, and now again exactly forty days of fasting and pain had passed. There seemed, therefore, to be a secret legislature which promulgates clearly defined sentences, I thought of the forty days of the flood, the forty years of wandering in the desert, the forty days' fast kept by Moses, Elijah, and Christ. There you have Strindberg's secret. His work is, for the most part, simply the dramatization of the conflict between man and the irritations of life. The chief of these is, of course, woman. But the lesser irritations never disappear from sight for long. His obsession by them is very noticeable in the dream play itself. In that scene, for instance, in which the lawyer and the daughter of Indra, having married, the lawyer begins to complain of the untidiness of their home, and the daughter to complain of the dirt. The daughter. This is worse than I dreamed. The lawyer. We are not the worst off by far. There is still food in the pot. The daughter. But what sort of food? the lawyer cabbage is cheap nourishing and good to eat the daughter for those who like cabbage to me it is repulsive the lawyer why didn't you say so the daughter because i loved you i wanted to sacrifice my own taste the lawyer then i must sacrifice my taste for cabbage to you for sacrifices must be mutual the daughter what are we to eat then fish but you hate fish the lawyer and it is expensive the daughter this is worse than i thought it the lawyer kindly yes you see how hard it is and the symbolic representation of married life in terms of fish and cabbage is taken up again a little later the daughter i fear i shall begin to hate you after this the lawyer woe to us then but let us forestall hatred. I promise never again to speak of any untidiness, although it is torture to me. The daughter. And I shall eat cabbage, though it means agony to me. The lawyer. A life of common suffering, then. One's pleasure, the other one's pain. One feels that, however true to nature the drift of this may be, it is little more than bacilli 
of truth seen as immense through a microscope the agonies and tortures arising from eating cabbage and such things may no doubt have tragic consequences enough but somehow the men whom these things put on the rack refuse to come to life in the imagination on the same tragic plane where prometheus lies on his crag and oedipus strikes out his eyes that they may no longer look upon his shame stringberg is too anxious to make tragedy out of discomforts instead of out of sorrows when he is denouncing woman as a creature who loves above all things to deceive her husband his supreme way of expressing his abhorrence is to declare if she can trick him into eating horse-flesh without noticing it she is happy here and in the score of similar passages we can see how physical were the demons that endlessly consumed strindberg's peace of mind his attitude to women as we find it expressed in the confession of a fool the dance of death and all through his work is that of a man overwhelmed with the physical he raves now with lust now with disgust two aspects of the same mood he turns from love to hatred with a change of front as swift as a drunkard's he is the mad mullah of all the sex antagonism that has ever troubled men since they began to think of woman as a temptress he was the most enthusiastic modern exponent of the point of view of that adam who explained the woman tempted me strindberg deliberately wrote those words on his banner and held them aloft to his generation as the summary of an eternal gospel miss lind f Hagaby tells us that at one period of his life he was sufficiently free from the physical obsession of sex to preach the equality of men and women and even to herald the coming of woman suffrage but his abiding view of woman was that of the plain man of the nineteenth century he must either be praising her as a ministering angel or denouncing her as a ministering devil preferably the latter it would be nonsense however to pretend that strindberg did not see at least one class of women clearly and truly the accuracy with which he portrays woman the parasite the man-eater the siren is quite terrible no writer of his day was so shudderingly conscious of every gesture movement and intonation with which the spider-woman sets out to lure the mate she is going to devour it may be that he prophesies against the sins of women rather than subtly analyzes and describes them as a better artist would have done the confessions of a fool is less a revelation of the soul of his first wife than an attack on her but we must in fairness to strindberg remember that in his violences against women he merely gives us a new rendering of an indictment that goes back to the beginning of history the world to him was a long lane of oglings down which man must fly in terror with his eyes shut and his ears covered his foolishness as a prophet consists not in his suspicions of 
woman regarded as an animal, but in his frothing at the mouth at the idea that she should claim to be treated as something higher than an animal. Nonetheless, he denied to the end that he was a woman-hater. His denial, however, was grimly unflattering. I have said that the child is a little criminal, incapable of self-guidance, but I love children all the same. I have said that woman is what she is, but I have always loved some woman and been a father. Whoever, therefore, calls me a woman-hater is a blockhead, a liar, or a noodle, or all three together. Sex, of course, was the greatest cross Strindberg had to bear, but there were hundreds of other little changing crosses, from persecution mania to poverty, which supplanted each other from day to day on his back. He suffered continually, both from the way he was made and from the way the world was made. His novels and plays are a literature of suffering. He reveals himself there as a man pursued by furies, a man without rest. He flies to a thousand distractions and hiding places, drink and lust, and piano playing, Chinese and chemistry, painting and acting, alchemy and poison, and religion. Some of these, no doubt, he honestly turns to for a living, but in his rush from one thing to another, he shows the restlessness of a man goaded to madness. Not that his life is to be regarded as entirely miserable. He obviously gets a good deal of pleasure, even out of his acutest pain. I find the joy of life in its violent and cruel struggles, he tells us in the preface to Miss Julia, and my pleasure lies in knowing something and learning something. He is always consumed with the greed of knowledge, a phase of his greed of domination. It is this that enables him to turn his inferno into a purgatory. In his later period, indeed, he is optimist enough to believe that the sufferings of life cleanse and ennoble. By torturous ways of sin, he at last achieves the simple faith of a Christian. He originally revolted from this faith more through irritation than from principle. One feels that with happier nerves and happier environment, he might easily have passed his boyhood as the model pupil in the Sunday school. It is significant that we find him in The Confession of a Fool, reciting Longfellow's Excelsior to the first and worst of his wives. Strindberg may have been possessed of a devil. He undoubtedly liked to play the part of a devil, but at heart he was constantly returning to the Longfellow sentiment, though, of course, his hungry intellectual curiosity was something that Longfellow never knew. In his volume of fables in Midsummer Days, we see how essentially good and simple were his ideas when he could rid himself of sex mania and persecution mania. Probably his love of children always kept him more or less in chains to virtue. Ultimately, he yielded himself a victim, not to the furies, but to the still more remorseless pursuit of the hound of heaven. On his deathbed, Miss Lynde tells us, 
he held up the Bible and said, This alone is right. Through his works, however, he serves virtue best, not by directly praising it, but by his eagerly earnest account of the madness of the seven deadly sins, as well as of the seventy-seven deadly irritations. He was not the originality of fancy or imagination to paint virtue well. His genius was the genius of frank and destructive criticism. His work is a jumble of ideas and an autobiography of raw nerves rather than a revelation of the emotions of men and women. His great claim on our attention, however, is that his autobiography is true as far as the power of truth was in him. His pilgrim's progress through madness to salvation is neither a pretty nor a sensational lie. It is a genuine document. That is why, badly constructed though his plays and novels are, some of them have a fair chance of being read a hundred years hence. As a writer of personal literature, he was one of the bold and original men of his time. End of section 19. Recording by Vicki Rands.